one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 405 for the week of Monday, February 6th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me once again tonight is Gene McCulgo. Welcome, Gene. Good evening, Sawyer. How's it going today? It's going pretty good, thank you. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Gee, I wonder what I want to be when I grow up. There's so many things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering, hint. too, with me, actually. Hint, hint. We'll get to that later. <laughs> Ooh, cool. Ooh, we will get to that in a little bit. But first, we're going to hand it off to Gene, who will begin our first round around the table. Yeah, not so good news, Sawyer. Uh, it looks like uh, we've got a little bit of a problem with uh, the Russian Soyuz spacecraft. That We kind of sort of alluded to it last week uh, on the show, but it, it became a, a really big deal, which kind of sort of forced uh, uh, the ISS program my, uh, manager, Mike Suffredini, uh to uh, go ahead and put together a, a really quick press conference about it. I believe it was Thursday. Uh, I'm looking at an article uh, from Spaceflight Now by uh, Bill Harwood, dated February 2nd, who describes what had occurred. Um, I will go ahead and just sort of give you his synopsis. Quote, during a pressure test of the descent module and the pressurized section of the propulsion module on the Soyuz, the vehicle was overpressurized, and as a result, it caused a leak in an area where the hydrogen peroxide system is housed for the thrusters that are used during the descent and landing. As a result, um, as Mike Suffredini said, our Russian colleagues have chosen not to fly this particular vehicle, and they've set it aside. And according to Suffredini, a commission has been formed to try to figure out what caused the overall pressure event and how to make sure it doesn't happen again. So they're going to go ahead, put this whole vehicle aside, and get a new vehicle ready uh, for this particular launch. Um, it looks like this crew uh, will have to wait for its ride. The new, the new crew, uh, well, which includes uh, a uh, Melbourne, Florida re- resident, former teacher, Joe Acaba, the delayed until May 15th while they go ahead and get a new Soyuz together and try to psych out what happened here. This doesn't really bode well for the track record. We're going to get into that a l- little bit later, too, uh, with, uh, with, with another story that uh, is also coming out of Russia this past week. But again, uh, I'll, I'll go right back to a program that we had back in, I believe it was July of last year. The Atlantis APUs weren't even cold on her last flight, and there was an article that appeared on the Roscosmos website 
uh, saying that, well, welcome to the era of Soyuz, the era of reliability. Well, let me see. We've had how many booster problems? We've had a couple of problems with the Soyuz itself. And, uh, well, again, I I had warned against doing that. I mean, the the example I gave was airlines don't do it because uh, they don't boast their safety records because they know darn well one accident and it's, you know, pretty much, you know, cooked. So, um, again, uh, I I really don't know what's going on over there, but I think you're kind of looking at, the need to go ahead, take a look at what you're doing, step back for a little bit, and try to regroup, figure out what you're doing, not just sort of plugging the holes that I'm seeing here. Um, I mean, it, it's getting to be almost like the um, the little Dutch boy with the finger in the die care, you know, saying, okay, we've got a problem here, we've got a problem here, we've got a problem here. Why don't you just go ahead, step back, and look at your overall processes and find out what is going on here and do a stem to stern fix of all of those processes and uh and you know try to try to regroup go back and go back at it they'll come back they'll come back strong but th- they've got to go ahead and 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 sort out what they're doing wrong and i don't think they've done that yet i think they're they're just sorting sorting out little things they're just sorting out the you know the engineering problems they have to really step back and look at what they're doing wrong and i don't think they've figured that one out yet well, that always just goes to prove don't count your chickens before they hatch and don't pressurize your space vehicles beyond where they can go. That's Oops. how the saying goes, right? <laughs> Oops, yes. <laughs> I wonder if that was one of those what was that kind of events in the lab. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if it was. All of a sudden you're, you're, you're doing a test and all of a sudden ping and it's like, uh-oh, you know, that, that would be my, you know, my instant reaction. Like, what the heck happened here? So I'll bet you it was was not a comfortable moment. Yeah, that that's a multi-million dollar oops. Not only that, again, you're trying to foster more confidence in the system, and right now that that confidence just isn't there. Uh, you know, these are are these are the people that are have have the job of getting crew to the ISS. They're the only people right now that can do it. And they've got to really, really try to go ahead and instill a heck of a lot of confidence. I, I'm not getting the warm fuzzies, but we'll we'll just have to see. Exactly. So we'll just have to wait a little bit longer for that Soyuz launch. I guess that means it's my turn now, and we will continue along with space flight, manned space flight. Except this one's about astronauts. Even though NASA necessarily doesn't have a vehicle at the moment to send astronauts up into space... NASA is still recruiting, and turns out this time NASA put out a larger invitation than usual. They encouraged the public to submit their applications to NASA to become an astronaut, which might be what Mark wants to be when he grows up. Yeah, yeah. This application round just completed, and in fact was the second largest application class in history, receiving 6,372 applications as of January 27th, 2012, when the deadline came. The only time that there was more than that was 1978, which had more than 8,000 submissions. However, normally they get about 2,500 to 3,500 applications. So during the next couple of months, the Astronaut Selection Office will sort through the applications to go through their list of basic qualifications, and then they will try and find highly qualified, and then from there they will go through interview processes and such of these ASCANs, as they're called, astronaut candidates. 
Well, Sawyer, you know, one of the reasons that I uh, was joking around about, you know, having an idea of what I want to be when I grow up is because I've been studying. What have I been studying, you ask? Well, the uh, National Academies Press had a uh, pre-publication copy of a document that I dug into considerably, and it's called Preparing for the High Frontier. The role, They got me at that. The Role and Training of NASA Astronauts in the Post-Shuttle Era. First, what do we need astronauts for? Well, they this committee that, that looked into this found that they got six basic uh, roles and activities for astronauts. And what NASA needs to have trained space flight operators to support their manifest. They need to have ground support personnel for unique tasks required to support the NASA flight manifest. They need to provide support for new program development from relatively small payloads and equipment to development of new spaceflight designs. They also need to have knowledge and corporate memory of human spaceflight. Uh, this is NASA's role overall, not astronauts exclusively, and provide for collaboration with their government, private organizations, government agencies, and provide for public and educational outreach. I found a, a simple formula. It says the number of crew members in post-flight reconditioning, in other words, crew members that have flown on the ISS on a long-duration mission, that number of crew, plus the number of crew members on orbit, plus the number of opportunities that are ahead with a five-year rotation, plus a 25% add-on for constraints is the minimum manifest. Now, the minimum numbers can, uh, can add up, but let me talk just a little bit more about numbers overall. One of the things that they've seen that can disqualify an astronaut from a future long-duration mission is something I hadn't heard about until recently, and that's a physical problem called, and pardon me on my pronunciation tonight, papilledema. It's the swelling of the optic disc. Several members of the astronaut corps have been medically disqualified from flying until the condition improves. In other words, their vision changes, in some cases doesn't return to normal or, or takes a long time to return to normal. Sometimes after an astronaut's first flight on a long-duration mission, uh, they choose to leave the corps rather than fly another long-duration mission. And I'll tell you a little bit about why that is, uh, that is the case. I want to talk about training and a few other things. But uh, let's go back to numbers. In 1959, the first class had seven candidates, Mercury 7. In the years after that, the numbers were, uh, 1962, they picked up 9, 63, 14, 65, 6, 66, they had 19. In 1978, they picked up 35 candidates. Hired quite a few out of that record-breaking list that you mentioned, Sawyer. It ends up that uh, 2009, the class had 14 candidates for a total of 366. It takes a lot of uh, a lot of folks to to fly the missions and do the things that uh, that we like talking about so much. A couple more quick things. You talk about a an astronaut. I remember when I interviewed for my job as an electronics technician, the manager that interviewed me said, you know, you're not just going to be doing this, this one aspect of being a technician that you think about. He said, you're going to have to do paperwork. Well, for the astronauts, one of the downsides of this is that they have training. But since the space station is truly an international uh, facility, 
they're going to spend time in the space station mock-up facility, the space station training facility, the dynamic skills trainer, the neutral buoyancy lab, the space vehicle mock-up. They're also going to go to the Canadian Space Agency for training. They may spend some time on the NOAA Aquarius habitat, remote outdoor locations. For example, a Soyuz Wright Seat Flight Engineer 2 astronaut can expect to spend 49 weeks at U.S. facilities, two weeks in Europe, 31 weeks in Russia, seven weeks in Japan, two weeks in Canada. Uh, Soyuz Flight Engineer 1 is equivalent to co-pilot. It's more demanding and requires more training than the Flight Engineer 2 position. So there's a lot to this beyond that, uh, that, that ride on the Soyuz and, uh, and, and five and six months in space. So plus the fact that they have concerns with medical conditions, vision problems, bone loss, physical injuries due to EVA, radiation exposure, some returning astronauts cannot requalify for ISS missions. There's astronauts that go into management roles that support the agency on some of the things that I mentioned to start with. So they've got, um, they've got a lot ahead, and it'd be nice to, to think that it's going to be exactly what they want, but they're liable to be doing a lot of very important support work that will be rewarding in a career. And if you think back, we've had quite a few astronauts in the last couple of years retire, including some of the uh, – some of the men and women from the last three shuttle missions that we focused on so close. Hey, Sawyer, um, do you know offhand uh, the amount of spot slots that will eventually be filled by this uh, potential class? I believe it's only anywhere between 10 spots that they're going to actually fill with this the 6,000-plus class that they've got. The total number of slots are 12. 12, okay. Wow, so, I was off. So of the 6,372 applicants... You have, there will be 12 astronauts selected. They will be, the final decision will be made in the spring of 2013 with the new class reporting for training that summer. And then the candidates will undergo training and they will be eligible for mission assignments in 2015, which is a year we will talk about later on. So again, if you make it, wow, you are really, really among the elite. And then you get to do all the cool things that Mark has, has described and get your frequent flyer miles and, uh, and all that good stuff, and you're off to a, a really, really good career with uh, with a very, very rewarding agency. It's just getting in there is going to be really, really tough. It's going to be very, very competitive. Plus, if you don't have that other language, such as Russian, you'll be picking that up. Oh, yeah. I'll finish off my story with a quote with NASA. Fly NASA, where the sky is not the limit. All right, although the sky is not the limit for NASA... We have reached the limit of our first go-around, with Mark adding on to our story there. So we will go to our second go-around of the table, and it goes back to you, Gene. Okay, this is, again, uh, we're going, we're still in Russia here. Uh, I'm looking at a February 3rd uh, article that appeared in the Russian uh, news service uh, RIA Nostrovi, and again, I'm I'm killing that. I'm going to go ahead and find out how to pronounce that correctly. I do apologize. Uh, apparently, now we've got a solution for the Phobos grunt probe and what had caused the demise. Now, remember, we kind of speculated here. There was a there, were, there was a website that sort of speculated that it was a failure of the main computer. Now, the report here, again, dated February third kind of follows up with that, but they actually give you the smoking gun. 
They're basically saying that heavy ions or essentially cosmic rays were responsible for sort of invading the computer and uh, and and, af- and affecting the, the computer in some way, shape, or form, basically frying it or, or doing something to the software on board. Um, okay, so essentially you're saying that the entire vehicle wasn't hardened against radiation. Gang, that's, you know, not for anything. I, I, I know a little bit about spacecraft design from what I've studied, and that's spacecraft design 101. I mean, you've got to make sure that your electronics are hardened against the space environment, that the vehicle is hardened against the space environment. It is not a not a tame environment up there, in plain English. There, again, radiation will fry you, and if your electronics are not hardened against it, you're going to have a problem. And in this case, apparently, maybe, they didn't harden the electronics. You know, basically have you know, components that are space-rated on board this vehicle, which kind of makes me wonder uh, what was going on with the design of this particular spacecraft. Was it, did they really, really cut corners that badly on this thing? I mean, what, what happened? Um, so I'm hoping that, again, this one, one more time, and, and I, I will go back to the last story, uh, you've got to go ahead and look at, at, at your processes, find out what, what you did wrong, and go back and fix it. And hopefully you'll produce Phobos Grunt too, which I'm already hearing is in the works. Um, so hopefully they'll, they'll learn their lesson from that. I'm just, I'm just looking forward to some good stuff. Because that was an ambitious mission, and it was a darn shame to lose it. So you think Phobos Grunt 2 was a good idea? As long as they've learned their lesson from that. I mean, the, the mission itself was, was, a, was an incredible flight. It was going to go over. It was going to soft land on the, the Martian moon Phobos, bring a sample back to Earth for study. Uh, I, I Do I think it's a good idea? Yeah, I think the mission is still valid. Maybe you don't build Phobos Grunt 2. Maybe you go on board uh, ExoMars, which is the European Space Agency. Uh, 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 I believe that's a, that's a rover and possibly a sample return. I'm trying to remember. It may or may not be. Somebody's going to correct me on that. I know it. But that mission is also in a little bit of jeopardy, too, because NASA was initially supposed to go ahead and supply the, uh, the booster and supply other components for that particular flight. And because of budget constraints, NASA is saying to the European Space Agency, yeah, I don't think we're going to be able to go ahead and do this because we're not even too sure what our bottom line is right now. So this really could be an opening for, um, for, uh, for Roscosmos to step into the void and say, okay, we'll, if, if you have confidence in us, we'll go ahead and, and help you out. Um, so this could also sort of become the Phobos Grunt too, if you will, uh, for this. So it might not, might be an opening for uh, for ESA to go ahead and try to pump up uh, that mission. So we'll see. And I'm also doubting that China will tag along again if they launch a Phobos Grunt too. Yeah, they were supposed to. That, that's a good, thank you for the reminder there, Sawyer. That did include a, a sort of a micro sat that was was going to go ahead and orbit uh, orbit Mars uh, China those are going to be the China's first ride up up to that point and uh, because of the failure they didn't make it so uh, yeah well it would be interesting to see if if there is a Phobos grunt too if China jumps on board that I'm I don't know I think they're going to be once, once bitten twice shy well we'll see about that and 
while we're talking about planets beyond our own, let's talk about, I mentioned later we'd be talking about the year 2015, and we'll talk about that now. And that is the mission New Horizons, which was launched back in 2006 to go to the now dwarf planet Pluto. Now, there's a little bit of a campaign going on, and it is a campaign for a United States stamp for the commemoration of them actually making it all the way to Pluto. Now, the interesting thing is that the spacecraft itself already has a stamp on board. The stamp was back from the 1990s. What did it say, Gene? It depicted, well, first off, it, it was a whole um, plethora of stamps about the, the solar system. Each planet was represented. But when we got to Pluto, and Pluto back then was still considered to be a planet, it had the, uh, underneath it, not yet explored. Now, that stamp basically spurred this mission on. Um, it was initially called uh, Pluto Express, and uh, that stamp was essentially the, the inspiration for the flight. So it's kind of fitting that uh, that, that stamp is on board. And I, I hope they do get the get a postage stamp for New Horizons because it, it would it would finally be the you know the little icing on the cake seeing see now it's done you know you know it's basically we've seen it we've been to Pluto now we know what it looks like and and that would sort of be the icing on on the cake so I hope they get it. The stamp that you're talking about was originally created in 1991. And again, New Horizons was launched back in January of 2006 and is set to arrive at Pluto. At 2015. Now, the campaign to actually get this stamp, the goal is for 100,000 signatures or more by March 13th, which is the 82nd anniversary of the announcement of Pluto's discovery back when it was actually the ninth planet. So, they need to at least submit the proposal three years in advance, which is why they're doing it now, and if it is selected, it will be printed in 2015, the year that the spacecraft is actually set to arrive at Pluto, according to Space.com. I will post a link in the description of the show notes as well to where you can sign the petition and read more about it. Because I have signed it. Yep, my signature's going on right after the show. Well, let's go from dwarf planets to another big man on the team, Mark Ratterman. What's your next story for us? Well, I've been thinking, uh, as long as we're, we're talking about all this fun outer space stuff... Um, how about a new kid on the block? How about the European Space Agency's upcoming launch of the Vega rocket? Vega, you say? Well, uh, the, the Vega is their newest addition to their flight line. You, you, know, you think about satellites being launched. Uh, the satellites seem to be getting bigger and more capability, and, and you need these big launchers. Well, there's also a need for a small launcher that can put a 300 kilograms to a 2,000 kilogram satellite economically into polar and low Earth orbits. That's what Vega is going to do. Their first launch is going to be coming up on 13th of February. The uh, launch is going to be from Europe's spaceport in French Guiana. And that's also where they launched the Ariane 5 and the Medium Soyuz. Well, now the, uh, the small guy, the Vega, is going to be launched. Vega is, incidentally, about 30 meters high, 3 meters in diameter. So it's not a massive rocket, but it's going to take some payloads up. First mission is designated VV-01. It will be launching, and this is GMT time, between 1,000 and 1,200 GMT. 
uh, this will be the culmination of nine years of development by ESA and its partners, which include the Italian Space Agency and prime contractors, the ELV SPA, and also seven member nation states, including Belgium, France, Italy, Netherlands, Spain, Sweden, and Switzerland. Interestingly, Vega is going to have payloads on board, one of which is the LARES, L-A-R-E-S. It's a laser relativity satellite. And another thing that I, if I'd heard about this sort of uh, device, I'd forgotten about it. But this is going to follow on previous Italian-American geodetic missions, the Legios 1 and Legios 2. And it's going to improve the measurements of the lens thurring effect by a factor of 10. That's another thing I hadn't been aware of, but the lens thurring effect is part of Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity that describes the distortion of space-time caused by the rotation of a body with mass. There's some other fascinating little sats called CubeSats that we've mentioned here and there, and the CubeSats in particular go by some interesting names such as uh, UniCubeSat from Rome, MASat1 from Budapest, the PWSAT from Warsaw, Poland, the Goliath from Bucharest, the E-Star from Italy, the Robusta from the University of Montpellier, France, and the Zetcobio, that's from Spain. So there'll be CubeSats will be launched as well. How does it get there? Well, it starts with, uh, and this is a four-stage rocket. First three stages are solids. The fourth stage is a conventional liquid uh, propellant stage. Uh, launch takes place, and in 30 seconds, it's transonic. In just under two minutes, it's going 3,800 miles an hour. It uh, drops the first stage, ignites the second stage. And uh, about a minute and 22 seconds later, it's going 8,500 miles an hour. It drops the second stage, lights the third stage. And in another two and a half minutes or so, it's going 17,224 miles an hour. And that's the point where the fourth stage takes over. And it performs five boosts that will deliver these satellites to, to various orbits. The uh, fourth stage is designed to be able to have up to five uh, independent firings to drop its payloads off in different orbits. And uh, go Vega. Yeah, Mark, what, what made me really, really think a little bit about what you're talking about there is is, is the amount of uh, the satellites that these, this thing is carrying, all the, all the CubeSats, and the different nations that are on board this thing. So it, it's, <laughs> I thought that was kind of cool to see all these countries sort of on this one rocket sort of represent, you know, it, it, just about half of Europe is represented on that one vehicle. So it, it's, it's going to be neat. I, it's going to be a neat thing to watch. After this first launch, another another tidbit, after the first launch, uh, Ariane Space uh, takes over the operation of Vega, and the European Space Agency becomes a customer for its first five launches, which their goal was to have two launches a year of the Vega rocket. That is really something. Go Vega, indeed. Indeed, we'll see what ends up happening with Vega. Hopefully that'll be a big success. Speaking of big success, we've made two successful rounds around our table. Let's go for one final time. Back to you, Gene. Hey, Mark. Uh, do you remember that nice little booster we saw back in November? Sure enough. Yeah, the the uh, the Atlas V that kind of sort of carried uh, our dear friend, the Mars Science Laboratory, which is en route to Mars even as we speak. With uh, 25 or so successful launches under its belt. 
Yes, sir. Now picture this. That pad just kind of sort of slightly modified and picturing people on the top of that thing. I'm ready. Yep. Well, it, we're we're about th- we're we're a few steps closer to that happening. Uh, I'm looking at a uh, article that was actually a commentary that was on Florida Today this past weekend, February 5th, written by uh, their uh, primary editor there, John Kelly. Um, he was saying that this past week, uh, to quote from the article, the United Launch Alliance and NASA just kind of quietly noted that the rocket met two important deadlines on its way to becoming capable of carrying humans to space. It uh, has passed. A, it's still continuing to, to follow up on, on milestones. And he's noting that NASA could have gone down this path uh, in, during the last decade and possibly kind of s- sort of shaved years and billions of dollars off the development time to carry crew to the, to the space station. I'm trying to see how he, how he gets there because we didn't have a vehicle to sit on top of that thing. Unless he's referring to possibly, you know, throwing something like the Dragon or something like uh, um, CST-100 or something like that on top of it. And he's saying here, yep, there's a model of the Atlas V on the drawing board that has the kind of heavy lift capability that is required to continue onward to longer duration human missions outside low Earth orbit. So uh, he he then asked the asked this question: Why would the U.S. not build upon the success of the Atlas V, which has sort of proven itself in you know carrying, as you mentioned, has has had 25 successful uh, missions under its belt? Why continue uh, going with? the SLS when you've got this particular vehicle in the pipeline with the Atlas V that is you know that it's not being modified and so on so why, why are you going to go ahead build this monster rocket from scratch when you've got something in your arsenal that could already possibly go ahead and do it um, I think that's that may be an oversimplified way of looking at it I don't know how quickly that super version of the Atlas V could be ready uh, to go ahead and go back uh, to the SLS for a moment, uh, there was an article just this past past weekend uh, saying that uh, the Department of Defense may be, in, <clears throat> excuse me, the Department of Defense may be interested in climbing on board this thing, sort of the same way that they climbed on board the shuttle. There are, you know, uh, apparently there are DOD payloads that could make use of a large vehicle like that. So. Uh, again, you know, it, it's it's the apples and oranges thing. Do we go continue evolving Atlas V and kind of put the SLS to bed, or do we continue developing SLS and and try to get a much larger, much heavier, ever heavier lift ca- capacity out of it? So, you know, good good questions. Uh, something I'm going to have to dig into because I don't know enough about that uh, heavy lift version of the Atlas V. To, uh, to comment on its possibly replacing or, or becoming a proxy for the, uh, the space launch system. So it's something I'm going to have to dig around for, but it's a good question nonetheless. Well, while we're talking about spaceflight again and manned spaceflight, not many people remember, in the general public, in the space community people do, but not many people know about the International Space Station that's up there hanging around in space with astronauts on board it performing experiments that are helping us all down here on Earth. Well, 
NASA is doing its best to try and get the word out about the International Space Station, and who better to use than television pundit from the Comedy Central TV show The Colbert Report, Stephen Colbert, who in fact has a treadmill named for him on the International Space Station, which Colbert, again, I am not using notes for this, stands for the Combined Operational Load-Bearing External Resistance Treadmill, which is his treadmill up in space. He released a public service announcement this past week in support of the International Space Station science, and here's the audio from it, and the video will be posted on our website. So go ahead and take a listen and feel free to laugh. Hello, I'm Stephen Colbert. I've always been a huge fan of space. I love looking up at the stars and wondering what distant planets are still out there to be discovered. And can we frack them for methane? And now I love space even more because NASA is doing great things at the International Space Station. Besides working around the clock to create new flavors of astronaut ice cream, come on, caramel space chip swirl. They're also developing new vaccines for things like salmonella, MRSA, pneumonia, and hopefully whatever disease makes our astronauts move so slowly in space. Please give generously. If you'd like to learn more about how NASA is improving our lives, visit www.nasa.gov. Or as they say in space, these aren't the droids you're looking for. So even though he's joking about it, and at the end you can't see it, but he's doing a little live long and prosper symbol there, and then opening and closing it. But even with that, he still makes humor of it, and that's the point. If we can get the word out about NASA any way possible, then that's a good thing about the International Space Station. So thank you to Stephen Colbert. The good thing is that he pointed out that there are other experiments on board other than trying to figure out why astronauts go very slowly in space. Uh, you know, stuff like uh, salmonella uh, experiments and things like that and trying to improve life here. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that people don't know about the ISS. I mean, it flies over them every 90 minutes and it is visible in in a lot of places. So, uh, you know, I'd also suggest, too, that you go ahead and, and go to the uh, to NASA.gov and take a look at when the ISS may be visible in your, your part of the world. There's a, a neat website you can go to, and perhaps, Sawyer, we could put that in our show notes as well. Indeed we can, and unfortunately I cannot post a link to new astronaut ice cream flavors. Oh, darn. Yeah, but you know, when you talk about uh, science research in space, if a little is good, more is better. So it's good to hear more about such. Indeed, and uh, you know, we may we may be uh, commenting on on some of that research here. So stay tuned. Indeed, we will. How about you finish us off, Mark, with one last story? One last story. Ah, my favorite. I got rocket <laughs> fever this week, so. Uh, I got to talk about Juno. Juno launched on August 5th of 2011, and the purpose of Juno's flight to Jupiter is some science. Measure water in Jupiter's atmosphere, look deep into it to measure its composition, temperature, cloud motions. They want to look at the uh, magnetic and gravity fields of Jupiter. They want to map the planet's deep structure, and they're going to explore Jupiter's magnetosphere near the poles and especially the auroras. So there's a lot of good science. Well, enough of the science. How about some more uh, just interesting tidbits? Um, they had a uh, flight correction maneuver, the first since August 5th. They didn't have to do the one planned after launch because that Atlas V, uh, 551, 5-meter five payload fairing, 5 solids, and a uh, 
a single engine, second stage, did such a good job of putting it on its way that this has been its first uh, in-flight maneuver that took place on February 1st. It put them on trajectory. They've got several more planned because it's going to take a while. They're 185 days and 11 hours plus into the mission as we record. Juno will arrive at Jupiter in 2016. So it's got quite a bit. In fact, not long ago, it passed the orbit of Mars, which it'll be doing two more times. Now, that trip past uh, Mars orbit was outbound. It's going to be making a return circuit coming back past Mars, coming to Earth. It's going to slingshot around Earth, get a gravity assist about 300 miles above the surface, and back out towards Jupiter, which it'll pass Mars again on the outbound, and it'll have sufficient velocity to get out of the inner solar system. Um, I wanted to tell you just some interesting things that I missed. Everybody probably knows about this, but on Juno, on the satellite, is a plaque dedicated to Galileo. Uh, the plaque was provided by the Italian Space Agency. It measures uh, 2.8 by 2 inches. That's 71 by 51 millimeters, if you prefer metric. It's made of flight-grade aluminum, and it weighs 6 grams, about 0.2 ounces. It was bonded to Juno's propulsion bay with spacecraft-grade epoxy. And the graphic on the plaque depicts a self-portrait made of uh, Galileo, and it also includes in his own hand a passage that uh, he made of his observations in 1610 of Jupiter, including the uh, moons that he discovered. And uh, another interesting little, uh, I guess you call it a hitchhiker on, uh, on Juno, is some Lego figurines. Again, I totally missed this, but there are three Lego figurines, mini statues, if you will, and they're part of an outreach and educational program between NASA and the Lego group to inspire children to explore science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. The figures are, in Greek and Roman mythology, Jupiter. Uh, it says, drew, clouds of, uh, drew a veil of clouds around himself to hide his mischief. From Mount Olympus, Juno was able to peer through the clouds and reveal, and reveal Jupiter's true nature. Well, these three figurines are the Roman god Jupiter, his wife Juno, and Galileo Galilei on board the uh, spacecraft. And uh, fascinating. Legos uh, really become an interesting promoter of, of NASA, increasingly so in the past year, with uh, kits that they've flown up to the International Space Station, uh, participation with, uh, with, in fact, payloads that went up on the shuttle up to the ISS. And uh, it's interesting to know that they're going to Jupiter, record-setting. Yeah, Mark, you're absolutely right about the Legos. Uh, they've sort of become almost a partnership and part and parcel with NASA. There's some very interesting also, uh, if I recall exactly, um, I remember seeing some of this during STS-134 and STS-135, our time in the press in the in the press center there. Uh, there was some Lego representatives showing some very good science around around Legos that they're trying to go ahead and and give to uh, to students for uh, for experimentation. So, again, Lego and NASA are becoming really good partners, and it will be really cool to see what. Uh, what Juno comes up with when it, once it arrives in uh, Jupiter's sphere of influence in 2016. I'm looking forward to that. Indeed, that will be really neat. And Legos in outer space, that's becoming the new thing. Whether it be weather balloons, International Space Station, they're everywhere. And on that note, 
I believe we are just about ready to wrap up this episode. Before we do, we just want to note the passing of somebody in who played a role in space history. His name was Roger Beaujolais. He was most notable for first raising the concern about a possible O-ring failure prior to the launch of STS-51L, which was the Space Shuttle Challenger, whose crew lost its life 73 seconds into the flight due to an O-ring failure because of cold temperatures the day of launch. And we send our condolences to his family. The passing away occurred in January, although it was just released to the public this past week. Also, we'd like to send a special thank you to all the listeners out there who donated to Astronomy FM. Because of your generosity, Astronomy FM is able to fund all of their programming for the entire year. That includes Talking Space. So thank you once again for donating. That does bring this episode to its final conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. It was a blast, Sawyer. Thanks a bunch. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Goodbye, 405. We'll see you on 406. All right. That's where we'll get our kicks on show 406. <laughs> Boy, it's been a long time since I've done a terrible pun. Oh, get ready for more of them coming up, but you're going to have to wait, because in the meantime, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Oh.